begin my sermon entitled, Here Comes the Judge. Judgment is not probably your favorite word. It's certainly not mine. Uh, it's a word that we say is a fair-weather friend to us. You might like the word if the judgment that is coming down is in your favor. Then you like the judgment. But if the judgment that is coming down is against you, you don't like judgment. I'm reminded of a time when I was... Uh, Oh, I was about in my early 20s, and I was fairly fresh out of college, and I was assisting a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. His name was Bill Rapp, for anyone who might remember old Bill. Good old guy. And uh, in the mornings, Bill and I would exercise together. He liked playing racquetball. He was pretty good, but I usually could beat him because I was younger and faster, but he, he was a, a very good player. And so sometimes he'd pick me up and take me over to the racquetball courts, or sometimes I'd pick him up. And on this particular day, I picked him up, and I took him to the racquetball courts, and we played several games. And then we got in the car, and I was going to drive him home so he could shower up and change, and I then would proceed home. But as we were driving towards his house, we came to a stop sign. You know those red hexagonal signs. And I stopped and stopped for actually a longer than normal period of time because across the street was a police car. And of course, you know, when you see a police car, what well, you have this autonomic response in your nervous system. Uh, in fact, uh, they even have a term for it. Police call it blue fever. Because suddenly you look at your speedometer to see how fast you're going. You take your foot off the gas involuntarily. You're worried when you see a police car, you know, because you don't know if you've done anything wrong. Anyway, uh, and some of them you can't trust anyway. So uh, I stopped, and I saw him there, and I waited a while. Oh, yeah, and there's one other dynamic I should explain. In Phoenix, you know, it gets hot in Phoenix. Uh, I lived there for 11 years, and I'm glad I don't live there anymore. Uh, there are only two seasons in Phoenix, hot and hotter, yes. And it's in, during the summer, I mean, June, July, August, it'll still be 102 at midnight. So there's just no relief. And in fact, I still remember the day I moved into my apartment in Phoenix. It was 120. And I'd carry a load in, and I'd just stay in the shade. Then I'd get back in the truck and stay in the truck for a while. Even, and it felt cool to be in the truck, even though it was, you know, a hundred in the truck. So it's not unusual in Phoenix to see people dressed down. And when I say dressed down, I mean, you think you're at the beach. People, well, they wear just their shorts, some sandals. I was going to say thongs, but I didn't want to give the wrong impression. Uh, and it's not unusual at all to see women walking around in bikinis, just going shopping, going to the store. And on this particular day, uh, that's another reason why Bill and I were stopped at the stop sign. There was this very attractive woman in a bikini walking down the street. And, of course, 
Bill noticed. I noticed. I even saw the policeman noticed. <laughs> I proceeded to make a right-hand turn to go up the street to where Bill lived. And behind me came the police car and turned the lights on. And I thought, oh, he must be in a hurry. He wants to get around me. So I kind of got over to the side. But he pulled right behind me and kept the lights going. And I thought, what's, what's going on here? It's day. I can't have a tail light out. So I stopped, and he came over and asked for my license and registration and told me that I didn't come to a complete stop at the stop sign. I knew his judgment was off because I sure well came at a full stop sign and we were all looking at that lady. And I saw him look at the lady. And uh, he wouldn't engage me in conversation. I would say to him, look, um, I did come to a full stop. Didn't you uh, see me there watching you? He wouldn't, he wouldn't even answer. He just wrote out the ticket. And I said, well, I guess we'll see you in traffic court. Now, I didn't like that whole circumstance the way that went down and I'll get back to that later but I but it makes the point when someone makes a judgment you don't like and you suffer for it you don't like judgment but if someone makes a judgment you like well then judgment seems to be a good thing now when I think of ugly detestable things bad judgment is one of them but there's even something worse than bad judgment because bad judgment falls under maybe the category of sin but when you think about sin, sin is really the ugliest thing in the world. And on the next slide, I don't have the clicker. On the next slide, I show you some pictures of cockroaches. Because when I think of something that's really ugly and detestable, like sin. Oh, you don't have it either? Oh, so you're going to have to manually advance it with the right arrow? <laughs> think of ugly, detestable things, cockroaches come to mind. And does, I mean, does anyone, I mean, growing up, people will get, well, hamsters for pets, you know, kind of related to the rat. I, I've even known people who've had rats as pets, but I've never known anyone to have a cockroach as a pet. Because I don't think anyone likes cockroaches. They're, they're detestable. They're ugly. And if it isn't bad enough, that they're ugly, there are 5,000 species of cockroaches. Isn't that remarkable? 5,000. And if that isn't enough, entomologists discover at least 50 new species a year. Like we need more cockroaches and more varieties of them. And I say they're ugly and they're ugly just like sin. And I make a bit of an analogy about that on the next slide. I was actually going to uh, have a little video clip of cockroaches running around, and Tammy said, oh, that'd be too much. And she's probably right. But have you ever noticed that cockroaches are just like sin? They can climb and run on nearly any surface. And cockroaches can do this because they have these double-jointed legs in the front, especially... 
and they have little sticking suction cup pads on their feet and arms, and that's why they can run upside down on things. They, they suction on them. I, I, I know it's disgusting, and if you've ever, if you've ever had to live with cockroaches, you, you know how disgusting that really is. And cockroaches are fast. Uh, I, you know, I would never be an entomologist, a, a scientist that studies insects. But entomologists have actually clocked how fast cockroaches can run. And they are among the fastest living creatures in the universe. Uh, their response time is 0.04 of a second which makes it the fastest living thing, which, well, just makes it all the more ugly and detestable that they can get around that fast and go upside down. Uh, they have a very fast relay system, and the other remarkable thing about them is that they don't like the light. If you go into a room, you know, they're all out congregating, doing what cockroaches do. And as soon as, yeah, and as, soon as you turn on the light, and uh, want to get away from the light. And they're extremely hardy, durable creatures. Cockroaches have been killed, that is, have had their heads cut off. I mean, this is what scientists do when they study insects. And the pregnant ones still live long enough to give birth. They can live seven days with their head ripped off. That alone makes cockroaches detestable. One more experiment. I, I, I get off on a tangent sometimes. One more experiment about cockroaches. Uh, scientists have launched them into outer space with the astronauts. But unlike the astronauts, the little cockroaches, they didn't get little spacesuits to protect them from the heat and from the vacuum of space. You know, the astronauts have to wear spacesuits so they can breathe and control the temperature and the environment. Uh, they didn't give those to the cockroaches. And so the astronauts come back to Earth after orbiting for days, and uh, the cockroaches are still alive. <laughs> they survive the vacuum of space without oxygen to breathe. So I think you might agree with me that Cockroaches are particularly disgusting, and that's why I say they're very analogous to sin. Because roaches thrive in dirt and filth and garbage, just like sin does. Roaches like to invade our lives through little cracks in our defenses, and that's how sin gets in. After hiding for a while, the roaches come out when you're not paying particular attention just like sin does in our lives. Some people like to deny that they have roaches in their home, just like a lot of people deny that they have sin in their lives. And last but not least, little cockroaches grow up to be big cockroaches, just like a little sin can grow into a much bigger sin. So I guess I'm giving you the picture there. I'll get off cockroaches now for a while, but it does point to the question of sin, and sin does require a judgment, because it is so ugly, and it is so detestable, and it is so, all these words come to my mind, repugnant, repulsive, and just, 
which is in your house, do you? And you certainly don't want to have one as a pet. And of course, this is God's view. Just like we hate living with cockroaches, God hates living with sin. On the next slide, I point out a few verses. And I think you're pretty aware that God's not big on sin. It's not one of his favorite things, nor should it be ours. But there are plenty of verses in the Bible, and I jotted down three here on the slide, to point out God doesn't like sin. Jeremiah the prophet, in speaking to Israel and reminding them how they had wandered away from God in the covenant, said, Do not do this abominable thing that I hate. So, big strong words here going on when it talks about sin. Abominable. Hate. God used the prophet Zechariah, and, uh, and it was a particular time when uh, a, lot, a lot of interesting things were happening historically, but to not get waylaid by that, Zechariah was inspired to write, God hates a false oath and evil done to one's neighbor. God hates sin. He just doesn't like it. And there are plenty of Old Testament examples of this, but... I just grabbed one from the New Testament to show it's there too. And it's there a lot in the New Testament as well. But Jesus himself, in Revelation 2.6, says that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So, it's pretty clear that the Bible emphasizes God does not approve of sin. That God hates sin. And I think you don't need... I'm speaking to the choir, as we say. We know God hates sin. But on the next slide, it begs the question, because God is love and God loves all of us, if God hates the sin, does he really love the sinner? And the answer is yes. The Bible does say that. But there are people who misinterpret some of the verses in the Bible to conclude God hates the sinner. Instead of the... Uh, long-standing from the first century forward, God hates sin but loves the sinner, they go on to say, no, God hates the sinner too. They go and take it a bit too far. And they have certain proof texts that they read that at first glance may sound like God hates the sinner too. And I jotted a few of them down on the slide, and there are dozens more than the ones I present here. But they all fall into the same category, and I will explain that in a moment. But, for example, Psalm 5.5 says, You hate all who do iniquity. Boy, that sounds like God hates the sinner, too, doesn't it? Or in Psalm 11, verse 5, The one who loves violence, his soul, God's soul, hates. Boy, that really sounds like he hates the sinner, doesn't it? Or Leviticus 20, verse 23, I have abhorred that. Wow, that really sounds like God hates a group of people. Or Proverbs 6, 9, 6 uh, verses 16 and 19, you know, where it, there are six things God hates, yea, seven. And some of those are a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. So, even though most in the Christian community worldwide agree and understand and interpret the Bible correctly to say God hates sin but loves the sinner, there are some Christians who take it too far and say, no, these verses prove that he hates the sinner too. And so, I have coined a term for people who 
use these kinds of proof texts to come to that conclusion. I call it cockroach theology. Because they're doing an ugly and detestable thing. They're misinterpreting God's revelation to us to lead people to believe he hates them. And uh, now when I have told people in some conferences that there are whole denominations who teach that God hates the sinner, most say, oh no, all Christians believe God loves the sinner. It's just so obvious. So to prove to you (laughs) that there are preachers who say this, I have a little clip some people uh, misinterpret the message of Scripture. And that's why it's important to understand this fundamental truth of the Bible, that God loves you. And even though you're a sinner, and I'm a sinner, God loves us. And he's done something about it. Now, there are three different errors involved that create this kind of misinterpretation of Scripture. And on the next slide, I'll go through them one at a time. Uh, But before I do, I want to point out very quickly why that interpretation is wrong. Because you have whole segments of the Bible, whole verses. Uh, Scholars refer to a whole segment of verses together as a pericope. A pericope of verses that say that God loves you. For example, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, someone would die, would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I just picked this pericope out because it just knocks in the head the idea that God hates you. Because Jesus came and died for us while we were still hateful sinners and ungodly. So that interpretation has to be wrong because it puts the Bible in contradiction with itself. And it is a gross misreading of verses. Uh, And I won't go through all the verses that I could to line him up on this side of the ledger showing that God loves the sinner. But rather, I think I'd focus a little bit of time now on the three errors being made that yield that kind of misinterpretation, that produce that kind of false conclusion. The first one on the next slide is known as atomistic exegesis. Uh, Exegesis is a fancy word for how you interpret the Bible. And it means that you're Uh, looking 
too far down in detail to get the right meaning out of the Bible. We have a cliche in our American language, can't see the forest before the trees. You've all heard that, right? That's what atomistic exegesis is. It's focusing on something in such detail, the little bits of a text that you miss the message that's being given. Let me try and illustrate that. Uh, if I were to write uh, a biography on my mother, and I write, let's say, 200-page biography, and in this 200-page biography, I explain that my mother was a beautiful person, an attractive lady, gentle, and always caring for others, and I go on to describe in great detail examples of how she was loving and caring to others. And in my description, I mentioned that my mom's nose was a little larger than average. Would you go away from reading this beautiful description of my mother saying, well, he didn't like his mom. <laughs> she had a big nose. No. Uh, clearly you would say, yeah, well, what about the other 199 pages where he's explaining how beautiful she was? Well, that's the problem of atomistic exegesis. It takes some little bit of a detail and blows it up and expands it beyond the proportion it should have. So that's the first error that's being made in misinterpreting Scripture to say, God hates you. The second one is, oh, very well done, sir. He's, he's staying with me now. <laughs> We're in sync. The next one is knowing the literature of the Bible. Uh, this is an interesting thing, and this should be like reading 101. For any literature you read, there are rules to understand what you're reading. And you might recall, depending on what uh, grade your English teacher taught you this, I mean, usually this stuff happens around fourth, fifth grade, at least it did in my elementary school. You start learning the eight parts of speech, and you start learning um, how language is used. Now, some of these you'll recall, I think, vividly. Like, you all probably know what a synonym is, okay? another word that has the same meaning, right? You probably remember what an antonym is. It's a word that's the opposite. So hot, cold, good, bad, they're, they're antonyms, right? But uh, there's a lot more. Uh, maybe you might recall what hyperbole is. Hyperbole is exaggeration. You know, told you a thousand times. That's hyperbole. Okay, you might remember... Uh, onomatopoeia, that was one of my favorites. <laughs> onomatopoeia is uh, a word that sounds like what it is. For example, uh, a bird says cuckoo. A sheep says bass. Those words are onomatopoeia. Uh, I have to think of some more. Well, euphemisms, you all know what euphemisms are, I think. It's a polite word for a word you shouldn't say. Good. Uh, yeah, metaf I said hyperbole, right? You're so hungry you could eat a horse, you know. <laughs> when you say these kinds, and these are all called metaphors, when you say these kinds of metaphors, you take them for granted. You know what they mean. So if I say, I could have knocked you over with a feather, 
You don't literally think that I'm picking up a feather that's 30 feet long <laughs> and knocking you down, right? You know what it means. You understand the metaphor. If, um, if your teenager says, if I can't have that dress, I'll die, <laughs> you know she's not going to die. You know that's hyperbole. Or when someone says to you, you know, uh, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. No, no he couldn't. <laughs> but you don't take the metaphor literally, right? You know what that means. We have all kinds of phrases. And you know they're in every language. Every language has metaphors. You know, in English, when someone says, uh, oh, you're pulling my leg. Now, you all know what that means, right? Anyone doesn't know what that means? You all know. You don't think that someone is grabbing me by the calf and yanking on it, right? You know it means I'm joshing and joking with you. Well, in Spanish, they say, no tomes el pelo. Don't take my hair. Means the same thing. Means don't kid with me. I won't even try to pronounce it in Arabic, but they have one there too that, in translated into English, it means don't throw the house on me. Every known language uses metaphors, and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek are no different. They use metaphors, and one particular kind of metaphor is known as metonymy, as I point out on the slide. Metonymy is a metaphor defined as a figure by which one name or noun is used instead of another to which it stands in certain relation. So let me give you a couple of examples of uh, metonymy that you could relate to. Shakespeare was very famous for it. He said, the pen is mightier than the sword. Recall that? Now, if someone's coming at you with the sword, it doesn't mean, well, I'm going to beat him down with my pen. Right? You understand if you take it literally, you got the wrong meaning. You understand the metaphor is an analogy, if you will, and you have to understand what that means. Or sometimes, um, yeah, Shakespeare said, uh, friends, country, Roman, lend me your ears. He didn't mean, you know, well, let's rip off this one and hand it over to him. Right? You understand the metaphor. Sometimes, uh, the executives are referred to as suits. And they'll say, well, the suits were having a meeting. Well, you don't think of a clothing rack of suits in you know, having a meeting. It, it means that the execs got together and had a meeting. So metonymy is what's being employed in all of those verses where it appears it's saying God hates the sinner. It's a metaphor. In fact, Tammy uh, made reference to a metaphor in her uh, sermonette. Um, she mentioned the Greek one uh, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the table that's a Greek metaphor that is an invitation to come to the table see if you take that literally it sounds like Jesus is being kind of nasty to the lady <laughs> but he isn't it's a metaphor as an invitation come join us so you see how important metaphors are and parts of speech are to understand what is really the meaning. Otherwise, you go off half-cocked with the wrong meaning. So that is the important thing to remember. This is a, a metaphor, and it is not to be taken literally. Oh, I forgot. And there's similes. Boy, I, I, sometimes I really get carried away with these 
different parts of speech. You, remember, you all know what a simile is? It's uh, when someone is happy as a clam, although I've never noticed that clams are that happy. <laughs> or uh, when someone says, uh, as busy as a bee, you know, or, uh, yeah, there we go, snug, snug as a bug in a rug. In a rug, snug as a bug in a rug. I don't know that bugs are that snug in the rug, but maybe they are. But you see that if you don't understand what's being said, you're going to run away very likely with the wrong meaning. And that's exactly what's happened with people who are teaching God hates the sinner. So we then come to the question, so what is biblical judgment? I mean, we understand there's sin, we understand sin needs to be judged. We understand God loves the sinner, but what is all this talk in the Bible about judgment? Well, that's what I will spend the rest of my time on in this sermon, and hopefully show you something that you may have never seen before about what judgment is, according to God's revelation in the Bible. And I think you'll be both comforted and joyful to understand the judgment and how it comes down on humanity. And the most important pericope of verses or context that you find in the entirety of the Bible that speaks on judgment is written by the Apostle John and in the first several chapters of John. Now, you know, growing up the way I did in the way we interpreted the Bible in the past, it's almost as if I was deliberately taught to misinterpret the Bible. Because I was taught to read a bit here and read a bit there and kind of put it together like a puzzle. (laughs) And at the same time, though, I was taught not to take things out of context. But if you're taking a little bit here out of context and a little bit here out of context and putting it together like a puzzle, I am violating the context. I am not getting the meaning because I'm deliberately taking things away from their context. And what's funny about it is we even had a verse that we used to use in the past to say, this verse proves that this is the way you're supposed to read the Bible. Here a little, there a little. You know that verse? (laughs) Line upon line, precept upon precept. But the funny thing about that very verse, in Hebrew, that is a condemnation of a drunkard. It's pointing out that this is how a drunkard talks. In Hebrew, it's kav lakav, sav lakav. It's a blabbering, of, you know, you know when someone drinks way too much and they get what's called a thick tongue and blah blah blah. That's what that verse is talking about. Here a little, there a little, like the rambling of a drunk person. It is not a hermeneutic principle that that verse is talking about. So you see the problem when you grab a verse and take it out of context, and then. Glue it to another verse, out of its context. The way to properly read it is in its contextual flow. And that's what we'll do here uh, as we now look at John 3, 16 to 18, which says something really incredible about judgment. This is the best-known verse of the Bible in the world. Surveys have been done year after year. This is the best-known verse. For God so loved the world... So loved the world, you know, so how can you go on believing God hates the sinner? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
And now I submit to you that verse 17 is probably the least known verse in the Bible, perhaps even in the Christian community. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. And I put in the parentheses the Greek word krino. Krino can be translated about four different ways, and I'll show you that now. But He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So you find this Greek word for condemnation or judgment, krino, used uh, in a number of ways as the verb form krino or as the noun form krisis. The, the noun form is the word we get in English as the word crisis. Uh, and just to point out how the word is uh, translated in a couple of different ways on the next slide, I took this verse, uh, John 3.19, from four different translations. The first one is the NIV. Next slide. Yeah. And you'll see that the word crisis is translated verdict. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds are evil. People behave like cockroaches. But you see that word, crisis. It's the feminine noun, and it's translated as verdict. But in the King James Version, you see it's translated as condemnation. And in the English Standard Version, the third one down, you see that the word is translated as judgment as well as the New Revised Standard Version. Most biblical scholars, when they're doing their scholarly work uh, and writing their papers, they use the New Revised Standard Version. And uh, so that's just something to know uh, why that one is uh, favored. Anyway, so this one Greek word, krisis, can be translated as verdict, condemnation, or judgment. And... You will, we will go through a few more verses that John wrote through the flow of this context to see what he says. But we see that judgment here is not Jesus' direct pronouncement. It's not Jesus' direct verdict or condemnation, as he tells us in First John, in John 3, verses 16 to 18. He didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to pronounce verdict on the world. You can equally translate that word with all three of those English words. So, moving forward now to verse 20. Notice what John records Jesus saying. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Just like cockroaches run when the lights turn on. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. A person responds to Jesus' love in one of two ways. Either that person responds to Jesus' love and says, Yes, I want to return your love. You come into the light. That's the positive response. Or people respond negatively and say, No. I'm not going to come into your light. No, I want to do my own thing. Only two responses. 
Standing still is an illusion. You're either moving closer to Jesus or further away. And just for a moment to verify that John's not the only one that teaches that, uh, remember that some of the other apostles teach it too, but I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But it's a fascination that people don't live in the reality of Jesus being a real person who came in time and space, who, as Tammy was alluding to, had a butterfly effect on all of the cosmos. And no matter how small we are, Jesus still can use us and have an impact on us. That means Jesus is the butterfly effect. In fact, if you ever think you're too small to make a difference, spend a night with a mosquito. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever, maybe camping, you're in a tent or you're in a bunkhouse, and maybe you're in a sleeping bag, and somehow there's one mosquito, and that mosquito will buzz in your ear, You'll wake up in the morning and say, how did I get bites here? There. No matter how small you are, God can make a difference with you and with me. So, on the next slide, I, I pose the question, what comes to mind when you hear that all will be judged by God? Now, the typical response from both Christians and non-Christians are, oh yeah, God is like a cosmic sheriff, this universal policeman. And he's just waiting to give you your ticket. He's just waiting to haul you into court. This is what people think of God. He's just this big cosmic judge. But it's, it's not that way. There's a... Uh, uh, he's a uh, Spanish theologian of sorts, he's more of a songwriter, his name's Ricardo Sanchez, and he has a real nice saying about this thought. He says, the devil knows your name and calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. God doesn't continue to look at our identity as sinners. God looks at us with a new identity. He looks at us through the lens of Jesus Christ. That's why he sent him, not to condemn us, but to save us. So why is it so difficult to see God as anything but a judge? Because that's what the, uh, the culture has taught us to do. But notice what Jesus taught John and the disciples. On the next slide, we'll go from John 3, just two chapters ahead, because we don't have time to read all 12 chapters of John. But in John 5, verse 19 to 21, Jesus gave them... This answer, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So there's nothing going on behind each other's back. This concept that a lot of people have that, well, in the Old Testament, God's this angry old guy. But in the New Testament, Jesus is this cool guy. Uh, he, he's, you know, we can hang with him. No. Wrong explanation, false interpretation, a, a dichotomy that isn't true. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now, notice Jesus' candid declaration in the next verse. He sets this up by telling us there is no difference between how the Father and Son view people. But in the next verse, 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. It's a powerful statement. Jesus is telling us the Father isn't going to judge us. I take that as really good news. Don't you? He's not going to judge us in all judgment, he says, has been entrusted to Jesus, the Son. You know, the guy that we can hang with. And it's for this purpose that we honor Jesus, the Son, just like we honor the Father who sent him. So the Father has given away his intention to judge. He gives it to you. And as I mentioned earlier, John is not the only one who taught this. Notice something Paul wrote on the next slide in Acts 17.31. Now, I'm not going there to boilerplate it and glue it to another verse to make a new thought. I'm just repeating what Paul wrote that verifies what John said. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul is verifying that a day has been set for judgment, judgment of the world, by the man he appointed. And we just read Jesus said all judgment was entrusted to him. So the Father isn't going to judge us. He's handed that baton to Jesus. All judgment is entrusted to him. But notice what Jesus says now in the next few verses. Uh, let's get back to John 5 on the next slide, verse 45. In case you're feeling a little bit nervous or anxious, we don't want you to feel anxiety about Jesus being our judge. Notice what Jesus says. Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. So Jesus, who now has all in judgment trusted to him, is saying, be cool, I'm not even going to accuse you. Right? But there is an accuser, and of course when he says it's Moses, it's a metaphor referring to the law. Moses was the lawgiver, Moses came and gave the law. Now, what it, it's important what it does and doesn't say. It doesn't say now, okay, you can go kill people, right? Because God hates sin. But it doesn't say that if you have killed someone, you can't be forgiven. See, because Jesus is not focusing on that. He's making another point. He's focusing on judgment. So as we stay in the context, notice what he says in the next verse. I, I'm sorry, in chapter 8. I'm going to skip to three chapters ahead, and I'm saving you a lot of reading here in between. But you can read it when you get home if you want. 
Notice what Jesus says in John 8.15. You judge by human standards. Hold on to your seat. Notice what Jesus says. I pass judgment on no one. Never saw that before, did we? So, at the risk of sounding repetitive and redundant, Jesus has told us the Father isn't going to judge us. He's given all judgment to Him. And Jesus has said, I'm not even going to accuse you. And now He's saying, I'm not even going to pass judgment on you. I'm not even going to give you a verdict. Now, since I don't have two hours to go through more chapters of John, let me take you on the next uh, slide to John 12, 31 and 32. Because we want to know when is this judgment. Because Paul said in Acts, there is a day of a judgment appointed. Uh, in John, he says, Jesus is sent not to judge but to condemn, or condemn, but to save. But there is a judgment, but Father and Son aren't the ones doing it. So what is this judgment? Notice John 12, 31, 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Either you like being near God who takes away your sin. Growing up, I used to love to play that game, hide and go seek. Everyone play that game? And you know, yes, you identify. So you get, get a certain point in the game and the person's trying to find people and you're hidden so well that, well, we've already found someone. We're now ready for round two. And they say, ole, ole, oxen, free, free, free. And everyone comes running from their hiding places. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Free, free, free. You're forgiven. And the judgment is not a verdict that Christ gives. The judgment is merely the presence of Jesus and His coming. Notice now in verses 47 to 50 on the next slide. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So, let me recap this, and it may seem elementary, but I like doing it. On the next slide, I point out, we've read in context, the Apostle John tells us, the Father will not judge you. And then, in the context, not only in chapter 5, but at verse, chapter 8 and, and 12 as well, Jesus said, he's not going to judge you. And then, it begs the question, so how and what judges you? And the answer, on the next slide, yes, is biblically speaking, eternal life is the final judgment. The presence of the life of Jesus is something you either say yes to or no to. And if you say yes, there's no judgment for you. If you say no, you've judged yourself. That's the word Jesus has spoken. You don't respond to Jesus, 
you take judgment on yourself. C.S. Lewis wrote, really, a brilliant book entitled The Great Divorce. If you haven't read it, I, I rate this personally in the top ten books every Christian should read. In it, he explains that God sends no one to hell. And that's a common thing you hear from people who are critics of Christianity. God's going to send you to hell. God sends no one to hell. You send yourself to hell. And C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly in a sentence. He said, Hell is a place where the door is locked from the inside. These are people who say no to Jesus' presence in their life. And God says, fine, have it your way. You're not going to spoil the party for everybody else. That's the long and the short of it. The judgment is our response to Jesus coming and saying, I forgive you, I save you, I redeem you. You say no, you're judged. It's that simple. As I summarize that on the slide, the judgment is in your response to the presence of Jesus' life. Merciful, honest, revealing, exposing, forgiving life. Given to you up front without any strings. Life was his message, and he said he was life, and he speaks life into us. So, in recap on the next slide, judgment is our response to Jesus' life given to us. Second, we must never forget that just provision has been made for everyone to receive the gospel of grace. I know some critics of Christianity and even some Christians themselves try to come up with a scenario. Right? Well, there's, what if there's someone in Africa? I don't know why they always pick Africa, but they do. What, what if someone in Africa, someone in Tanzania, never heard the name Jesus? Or... What if someone on Bora Bora never... You know what? There isn't a place on planet Earth anymore where someone hasn't heard the name Jesus. And so this, it's a false scenario. But let's even take that scenario and take it back a thousand years. Was there some place where someone never heard the name Jesus? Possible. Maybe even probable. But your next waking moment, you meet Jesus. And your judgment is how you respond to Him. I'm going to say yes to your yes, or I'm going to say no to your yes. It's that simple. That's the judgment. Now, I imagine if I were an atheist my whole life, and I didn't believe God exists, and I die, and my next waking moment, I'm standing for Jesus. I'm going to say, yeah, I'm going to say, yo, I've been a fool. <laughs> I say yes to your yes. <laughs> and personally, I believe that those who are going to be in the kingdom of heaven are a lot more than many Christians would like to believe. But the Bible does indicate there are going to be some people who I can't fathom this kind of stubbornness. In fact, this kind of stubbornness is some kind of mental illness, a perverseness, to refuse God's love. I mean, it's, to, to people like you and me, it doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, to say, I don't want your forgiveness. I don't want your love. I don't want all this good stuff. C.S. Lewis, in his book, tries to explain it by saying, it's like all those who love and respond to love of God see in color. <laughs> 
But the people who don't, they see in only two shades. No shades of gray, not 50 of them, not even 10. Black and white. And they see God as unfair, and they don't want to be with Him. Now, I, I can explain that that's how they must view it, but I can't relate to it. it it's so alien to my being, and I imagine yours too. But the Bible indicates that there probably are going to be some like that. I can't imagine it, that there will be some who refuse it and alienate themselves from God's kingdom. But the point is, they judge themselves. They lock the door from the inside. Now, I wanted to add one more thing to this second point about provision has been made for all. Because the Bible doesn't give us a wealth of information about people uh, at their twilight of their life when they die. Now, we know from medical science that people have died and been clinically dead for up to a half an hour and then come back to life. No brain damage, you know. They, they were somehow revived. And it happens sometimes for only four minutes, but it's happened up to half an hour that people are clinically dead, but then they come back to life. Now, that helps us in a, in a bit. Because it's like this old line from uh, The Princess Bride when they brought this guy in and he said, Oh, no, he's not completely dead. (laughs) He just looks dead. He's mostly dead, but not completely dead. (laughs) And this is a real thing. Medical science verifies it from clinical death experiences. And what the Bible seems to indicate because it refers to angels as ministering spirits of light. That in that twilight of your existence, that person that you are in the spirit, angels minister to you. They get the presentation of the gospel. And this isn't something I'm making up. This is an ancient teaching in the Christian church that Thomas Aquinas taught. And... Clement of Alexandria, who was in the second century, that in that twilight, before you're completely dead, angels minister to you and you hear the gospel. Now, I I believe that's true. Uh, But I can't say with 100% certainty it is, but that's been an age-old teaching of the church. And so, there's not going to be a case where someone has not heard the name of Jesus. And God is a judge. God is a person of fairness, not a judge that is unfair. Now you recall I began by talking about this policeman pulling me over and giving me a ticket. And on the appointed day, Pastor Biddle and I showed up in traffic court. And it was interesting. How many of you have ever been to traffic court? Oh, yeah. Boy, I'm not alone in this experience. (laughs) Well, it was interesting because I wasn't the first case. And I was rather glad for that because I got to see how other cases were handled. And so I watched a few get up and make fools of themselves. But then I saw a couple handle themselves quite adroitly. So I learned from that a little bit. And then finally they called my name. Couldn't pronounce my name well. But uh, that's okay. I consider that points on my side. And uh, the police officer was there, and he asked me, how do you plea? 
And I said, not guilty, Your Honor. <laughs> he said, well, what defense do you have? I said, well, sir, I have a couple of items. One, I have a witness. And two is my own testimony, and I brought up the lovely lady in the bikini <laughs> and mentioned that if it were possible, I would have liked to have found her, but that I was a married man, and this would not be appropriate, <laughs> but that we both watched her walk by, and it took several seconds, so I was way past the three-second rule on the stop sign. Anyway, he didn't even ask to talk to Pastor Bill as my witness. He said, case dismissed. I was real happy. And that's what happens to Christians. Jesus says, case dismissed. You're forgiven. There's no accusation even against you. It doesn't get any better than that. So we say yes to his yes. We respond to him and his forgiveness with all our being. It's what relationship is all about. Amen. Feeling the blues today or tired of life already? Do you have questions about life or need spiritual advice? The Worldwide Church of God is located in Fairfield, Santa Rosa, and Modesto, California. We welcome everyone to attend our worship services with us every week at the times listed on your screen.